I'm, I'm thankful to welcome you today as we continue our Revelation series, and I hope you had, uh, you received the handout when you walked in of our notes. If you don't have a copy of this, every location, if you don't have a copy of the notes, just raise your hand. Our ushers, our ushers will make sure that you receive a copy. We want you to have this as a resource uh, that you can go back and look at these notes throughout the week or maybe later on in the year or next year, just so you can go back and, and go over these notes. We also have a, a section there that helps you keep your rhythm uh, throughout the week. But we are in a series right now about the book of Revelation. And just to recap what we talked about last week, I want you to know last week we laid a lot of groundwork for this series. So if you missed week one, I encourage you to go back on our website, life.cc, go back on our YouTube page or our Facebook page, you'll find the message there. Because it's in week one, last week, that we laid a lot of groundwork for understanding the book of Revelation. And what we talked about was that Revelation is not meant to be a coded mystery that's waiting for us to solve it. The book of Revelation was not written to be a source of fear or confusion. It's not something that should make us anxious about the end as the church. And so this month, what we're doing in this series is we're going on a journey of rediscovering what the book of Revelation is all about. And just to quickly recap, last week we talked about three things that the book of Revelation is. It's a letter, it's a prophecy, and it is an apocalypse, which is the word that, that we get revelation from. Apocalypsis in Greek just means revelation. And so as a letter, it had a real and practical meaning to the original recipients. John was writing to real people, and this letter had real and practical meaning to them. As a biblical prophecy, it reveals unseen realities of the future and the present. So when we read Revelation, we can't just be focused on what's happening or going to happen in the future. It's revealing unseen things that are taking place right now in the world that you and I are living in. And as an apocalypse, and written in apocalyptic literature, it uses imagery, numbers, colors, and natural phenomena that give them deeper meaning. And like I said last week, it's hard for us to see that sometimes, because the way that you and I are trained as Western Americans is we want the facts. Just tell me the facts, tell me what's true in this story, what is the information that I need to know, but this style of writing uses imagery, number, and colors to have deeper meaning. So the purpose of the book of Revelation is to show the seven churches in Asia that John was writing to, and to also show us that things are not as they seem. And what a Sunday to say that. As there's war in Eastern Europe, and as there's war in the Middle East, and who knows what's going to come of this, who knows what's going to happen in that part of the world as a result of these actions that have taken place over the last few days. But what you and I need to know, church, is that things are not as they seem. We look at the world situation right now and we think it's a geopolitical, uh, uh, militaries rising up against each other, our economies playing out. There is a spiritual battle taking place. The Bible tells us that, that different governments and empires, they're influenced by Satan. And so while they mobilize and fight against one another and war against one another and play games against one another and try to destroy each other's economies, and while Democrats and Republicans are talking trash to each other, there's unseen realities taking place. There's spiritual warfare that we're involved, with, involved in. And if we don't understand that, church... 
If you and I do not understand that as believers, we're going to start picking the wrong enemy. We're going to start looking at other people saying, well, that's my enemy right there because they have this ideology that I'm opposed to. Well, that's my enemy right there because they don't vote like I do. Well, that's my enemy right there because they're from this country that we're going to war with. The book of Revelation is telling us, no, there's something else going on that you can't see. Last week, we talked a lot about that last week. The horsemen are riding, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's not something that's going to happen one day, but there's war and plague and famine and false religion today. So today, in part two of this series, we're going to draw our attention to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and it's in these chapters, chapters 2 and 3, that we find what are known as the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So today's message, that's what that is, the letters to the church. And these churches that John's writing to in Revelation, they were real churches with real people with real problems. But remember, in Revelation, because of the apocalyptic literature, numbers have meaning. And the number seven is a representation of completeness or perfection. So while the book of Revelation was written to seven churches, I believe that the message of this book is for the entire church throughout all history. It's for you and I. Does that make sense? It was written to them. It was written to these seven churches in Asia at this time that John is writing, around 96 AD. But it's for us. And I believe that there is a warning and instruction that's given to the church in these letters to the church. So before we begin to discuss what the letters mean for us, I want to lay a foundation that I think is going to help us have a proper context for understanding these things. You see, the book of Revelation discusses the end times or the last days more than any other book in the Bible. So it's important for us to know what that means. What do the end times mean? What do the last days mean? What is the world supposed to look like at the end? And just so we're clear, I believe the world has been in the last days ever since Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. We've been living in the last days. But every generation, we get closer and closer to the return of Christ. And so it's important for us to look at Scripture and understand what do the last days look like? What does it mean for us? And I want to start today by reading in Matthew 24, 37. You might be asking yourself, well, Pastor, why are we going to Matthew chapter 24 for a series about the book of Revelation? Again, you got to go back and listen to last week. We talked about how in Matthew 24, Jesus begins to talk about the end times. And a lot of what we read in the book of Revelation is just a retelling of what Jesus has already said here in Matthew 24 and 25. And in Matthew 24, verse 37, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man is a title that Jesus used to re refer to himself. So he's saying, just like it was in the days of Noah, that's what it's going to be like in the last days right as I'm returning. So what does Jesus mean by that? What does Jesus mean by saying that the last days are going to be like the days of Noah? We, most of us know the story of Noah. If you don't, he's the man that built the big boat to save his family from the flood that God was sending to punish the wickedness on earth. And here Jesus is saying, well, the end times, the last days, the days right before I return, they're going to be like those days. What does he mean? 
I think there are three things we need to know about the meaning here that Jesus is trying to tell us. The first is this, that in the days of Noah, the end came suddenly, and the world was unaware. The end happened suddenly, and people were unaware. They weren't ready. If you read that passage there in Matthew 24, Jesus says, in the days of Noah, people were eating, they were drinking, they were getting married, they were going about their daily business without any awareness of the impending judgment. And just as the flood came suddenly and unexpectedly, it changed everything in a moment. Jesus is saying, that's what it's going to be like when I return. It's going to happen suddenly. The world is going to be unaware. And it will happen so quickly, there won't be time to repent. Everything will be changed in a moment. The second thing is this. In the last days, that there will be an increase in wickedness and evil. The Bible tells us in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, talking about the days of Noah, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. An increase of wickedness and evil. 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verses 1 through 5, Paul also talking about the last days, the end time. He he kind of echoes this. He, He tells us about this. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. It's not just war. I want you to listen to what Paul says. Because I think a lot of times, especially if we've grown up in church, we think of the last days as all out nuclear apocalypse. This is the evil in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Now, parents, you can't weaponize that against your kids, okay? (laughs) Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Not once in Paul's description of the end time do I see anything about war. Do I see anything about violence? He says, it's going to be wicked and evil, and look what this is. It's people being proud and abusive and unforgiving and slanderous. It says, having a form of godliness but denying its power. I think this, you know, like virtue signaling today of like, everything I believe is right, and I'm a good person, and if you don't believe like me, you're evil. Have nothing to do with such people. And of course, we look in our world today, isn't that what the world looks like? Full of pride. Of course, we have the violence. We have the drug addiction. There's the sex addiction. There's sex trafficking. There's war. There's poverty. There's exploitation. There's corruption. There's greed. There's envy. Church, we are in the last days. The third thing to know about what the last days look like in the world. First, Jesus tells us the end is going to come suddenly and the world is going to be unaware. There's going to be an increase in wickedness and evil and also there's going to be a rise of lawlessness. Everybody say lawlessness. Let's read again from Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul again is talking about the end times. He's actually talking about the end of the end times because he says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ... 
and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us. There were false teachers going around influencing this church, telling them that the day of the Lord had already come, that Jesus had already returned, and they were just unaware of it. So Paul's saying, no, don't fall for that lie. Whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness is the Antichrist, and we're going to talk about that next week in a sermon called The Beast and His Mark. So Paul says, no, the end won't come until the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. But then he says in the first part of verse 7, there's a man of lawlessness, but the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Now, as Paul wrote this in the first century, if the secret power of lawlessness was at work in the world then, don't you know, church, that it's at work in the world right now? What is Lawlessness. Well, just look at our world today. We have an erosion of absolute truth. What is it that we hear in today's culture, in today's thinking, today's ideologies and philosophies? It's you get to have your own truth. That there is no absolute truth, that your truth is based on whatever you feel, whatever your experiences, experiences are, and morality has become a matter of personal preference. There's perverse sexuality that is celebrated. Polyamorous relationships are being normalized. Transgender ideology and sexual deviance are being embraced. And in some places, even in churches, these ideologies are being taught to young children. It's similar to the people of God. And we study Old Testament scripture, Israel falling away. There's a verse, I think it's in Judges chapter 21 that says, There was no king in Israel, so everybody did what was right in their own eyes. I get to decide what's best. I get to decide what's good. And listen, church, it's easy for us to to go through these things that I just mentioned and all all of these ideologies and lifestyles that are in the world. It's easy for us to say, yeah, look at all that lawlessness. But you know what else is lawlessness? Thinking that, well, I'm a good person. I mostly do what Jesus says. I, I, I live a pretty good life. You know, I've been living the American dream, and, and my life is pretty good, and my home is, is pretty stable, and I provide, and, and you know, I do the things that Jesus wants me. I follow the Ten Commandments. But you're not being molded, transformed by the Holy Spirit. You're not involved in doing the work of Christ in the world. Isn't that the same as saying, well, I know how to do this better than what Jesus says? Does that make sense? So listen, that's the condition of the world in the last days. That's what the Bible tells us is the condition of the world. There's an increase in wickedness and evil. There's an increase in lawlessness. And Jesus said, listen, the end is going to come suddenly, and the world is not going to expect it. So if that is the condition of the world, what about the condition of the church? The Bible talks about what the condition of the world will be, but does it talk about what the condition of the church will be in the last days? I believe it does. Jesus is continuing to talk about the end times, going from Matthew chapter 24 now into Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is still talking about the last days before he returns. And he tells a parable. This is the parable Jesus 
tells to describe what the church is going to be like in the last days. He says, at the time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now just so you know, very often in scripture the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And here in this parable, Jesus tells us there are these ten bridesmaids that are waiting for the, the coming of the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish And five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom. It happened suddenly. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. There was no time. There was no time at the end for them to do the things they needed to do to be ready. The bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. And then the warning, the instruction from Jesus, therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So what does the church look like in the last days? Well, to put it simply, there will be believers in churches who are ready for the return of Christ, and there will be some who are not. Some churches will be expecting the return of the Lord, working diligently in their purpose, sincerely worshiping, teaching, and obeying, and serving, and others will have fallen asleep or fallen away and embraced the ways of the world. Others will have a false sense of security. For whatever reason, maybe it's just complacency or or apathy. They've just become comfortable with life. They're just happy with how things are. Maybe they're focused on the wrong things as a church. Whatever the reason is, Jesus in this parable, he's emphasizing the need for vigilance and preparedness. Vigilance and preparedness to the church. So with that context of understanding what the world is going to look like in the last days and what the church is going to look like in the last days where some churches are unaware and not prepared. Now let's dive into these seven letters to the church. The first letter that we come across in Revelation chapter 2 is addressed to the church in Ephesus. And we, we recently did a series where we I talked a lot about Ephesus, or the city of Ephesus and the, and the book of Ephesians that uh, Paul wrote to this city. But it's an, incredib- it's an incredible city in terms of its economic and cultural and political significance. It, it was home to the largest pagan temple ever built to the goddess of Diana. I mean, it's a big metropolis. It's a big city. And at the beginning of this letter... In Revelation, Jesus is the one speaking to these churches. John is narrating the words of Jesus to these churches. And Jesus commends this church in Ephesus. He commends this church for standing strong in the face of the culture, in the face of a pagan culture, in the face of a culture that worships the emperor of Rome as Lord, 
This church has remained strong. We can see in Acts 19, Paul's involvement with this church. Paul spent two years, over two years, with this church in Ephesus. And Paul's spiritual son, Timothy, where we have letters in our New Testament that were written to Timothy, Timothy was the bishop of this church in Ephesus. And actually, it was this church in Ephesus that Timothy was leading when the government ripped him out in the street and publicly executed him. This is the church, and they have remained strong, and Jesus is commending them. But this is what Jesus goes on to say in Revelation 2. Verses 4 and 5, he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I'm not going to work through you. My spirit will not be with you if you do not repent of this. Jesus tells them, you you have forsaken your first love, which was him. Their first love was was him. You see, they had started caring more about their doctrine than Jesus. Why? Because this church had to basically be an apologist church. They had to confront this culture that was very educated and entrenched in pagan and emperor worship. So they had to get really good at telling the gospel. They had to stand really strong in their faith, and eventually, they just got really good at having church, but along the way, it stopped being about Jesus, and it became more about the way they did church, and the things they were really good at, and the programs they were really good at, and the the Bible studies they were really good at, but it wasn't about Jesus. And Jesus calls them to repentance. He says, you need to return to your first love. I, I think you're doing a great job. You've, you've stood strong in the face of this culture. You've just forgotten that it's about me. The second church that we come to in this series of letters is a church in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was a massive import-export city. It was full of paganism. And this church in Smyrna, it was, it was unique because... Jesus didn't have a rebuke so much as an encouragement to them. You see, this church, the people in this church were very poor, and they were facing persecution. Because like we talked about last week, this is the first generation in the last 30 years at the time of this letter had been written, the Roman government had actively been uh, persecuting Christians. So they're, they're a poor people, they're facing this persecution, they're being cast into prison for refusing to worship the emperor. And they're being turned in by their fellow citizens because they're being disloyal to the government. They're being disloyal citizens. And then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus encourages them. And wouldn't it be nice if the encouragement was, don't worry, you're not going to have to suffer. Don't worry. I know there's persecution coming, and I know you don't want to face it, but I'm going to save you from it. That's not... What Jesus says to them, he says, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, I don't know if this is a literal 10 days or if this is symbolic for something. But Jesus goes on, he says, be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. 
Oh, it's human nature to fear suffering. It's human nature. We would rather not suffer, right? We don't want to go through painful situations. We don't want to go through things that are difficult. I'll never forget when I enlisted in the Marine Corps and I got shipped to MCRD San Diego, it was the first time where I had encountered a drill instructor. And before I had a drill instructor get in my face, I was able to watch several people several other recruits be swarmed by these drill instructors and have their hats ripped off and thrown down and four different guys spitting and screaming in their face. And as I watched that happening, I was like, oh God, I do not want that to happen to me. Is there a way that I can just coast by here where nobody's going to know my name? But no, that's, that's not what happened. We don't want to endure things like that. We don't, and that was minor thing, you know, being yelled at. But what about, what about physical suffering? What about real persecution? What about the things they were about to suffer that Jesus is talking about? Is the government coming and ripping them out of their homes, throwing their fathers and mothers in prison, blocking them out of the economic system? You can't work. You can't earn money. You're an outcast. Jesus said, don't be afraid of that. They're being tested. What Jesus said, you will be tested and purified in your suffering. And on the other side of your suffering, there's a reward. Jesus calls it the crown of life. It is eternally being with him. The reward is being with him for all of eternity. So the instruction to the church in Smyrna was to remain faithful to the end. Remain faithful. Aren't you thankful, church? Aren't you thankful that today we're not facing that kind of persecution? I understand there's things that might be happening that, that infringe our individual liberties. I understand that. I understand that, that right now we're living in a postmodern culture, a post-Christian culture where, where being Christian and following the ways of the Bible can be ridiculed and criticized. I understand that. I'm certainly not trying to downplay that, but in light of what suffering Jesus is talking about, in light of what's happening right now where what's, who knows what's going to happen to the Christians in Jerusalem, even this weekend, there are Christians in Syria and Iran and Afghanistan that are meeting secretly that if they're found out, they will be hung in the street. They will have their head cut off. That's happening in the world today. And aren't you thankful? We don't have to, we don't have to endure that. Got really quiet here in Houston. I understand. You know what I think, though? I wrestle with this. Is my faith strong enough where I could remain faithful? Am I doing what I need to do right now as I raise my three children? That if this were to happen in their generation, have I given them a faith that will remain faithful? What about my grandchildren? If this were to happen in my grandchildren's day, have I done the things I need to do that they will have a faith that is strong? And will remain faithful. It's easy for us to get comfortable and complacent and become more concerned about the lights and the sound in the room than connecting with the eternal God. Jesus says, remain faithful to the end, even unto death. Let's just take a moment, Lord. You see all of our brothers and sisters right now in the world, in every part of the world, who are gathering in secret in places where your name is persecuted. 
in places where it is dangerous for them to gather, yet they are still making the effort to join together, to tell testimony, to read scripture, to hear your word, to sing your praises. We honor them, Lord. We ask your protection on them. And we pray for revival in every nation that that is happening right now, Lord. Every nation where there are Christians being gathered together to worship your name, Lord, we pray for an outbreak of your spirit that the fellow citizens would begin to be influenced by the church, that the people in authority, the governments and the regimes that are persecuting them, that those regimes and those powers would begin to become dismantled and that the influence of the church would be all throughout those areas, Lord. We pray your peace, your anointing, your strength on them today. In Jesus' name, be with our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The third church that we come to is a church in the city called Pergamum. Pergamum, this city was a center of education, of, of the arts, and, and of the sciences. And basically what, that, what you need to know about that is this city had a lot of cultural influence. It sounds a lot like Houston, actually. It was kind of a hub of all these different cultures and all these different trades happening. And it had a lot of cultural influence throughout the Roman Empire in Asia. And it was also home to pagan worship and emperor worship. And Jesus starts off saying, I I recognize that you you have remained faithful to me. You've remained faithful to me, but there's something that's starting to creep into this church in Pergamum. And we see it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 14. And in your handout, I didn't put verse 15. But verse 15 has also something very important to say about what's creeping in here to this church in Pergamum. So if you want to just make a note, it's Revelation 2, 14 and 15. Jesus said, nevertheless, you've remained faithful to me. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15 says, likewise, you, have also, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there's two things that Jesus mentions here to this church, is that they're being influenced by the teaching of Balaam, and they're being influenced by the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And I don't have time to get into who Balaam is and who Balak is. They are Old Testament figures, and they represent a faith In this writing here, they represent a faith that Jesus is talking about. So let's talk about the teaching of Balaam. Teaching of Balaam means to serve God without loving him. It's kind of like what I talked about a moment ago. To serve God without loving him. Now, why would you do that? Why would you serve God if you don't love him? Well, it's easy because you don't want to be punished. Well, I'm just going to serve God. I'm going to do these things because I want to escape hell. This is the I'm a good person doctrine. This is the doctrine that says, okay, I've done the bare minimum to stay out of trouble. The Ten Commandments, you need me to follow the Ten Commandments? Okay, that's easy enough. I'll do that. This teaching rejects real relationship with Christ. This teaching rejects being molded into his image. This teaching is content with showing up a couple of Sundays a month, sitting in the seats, never being part of what the church is doing. Never allowing Jesus and the Holy Spirit to really confront some of the thoughts you've been having, some of the habits you've been living with, and your concern is just, well, I'm, just, I'm, I'm going to mold my lifestyle into looking like this. I'm going to look the part. Uh, I'm going to do these things that, that the Bible tells me I need to do so that I don't have to go to hell. 
but there's no love for Christ. And in this passage, Jesus refers to the teaching of Balaam. It leads God's people to eating food, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. Listen, he's trying to point out to us that this spiritual condition, this this serving God but not loving God and just trying to obey the commands of God is just as wicked as being involved with idolatry and immorality. So you you might have the appearance that you're, you're living the right way, but really it's just as wicked as this. So there there are those people. Let's call those people the hyper-truth people. Well, I'm just going to do what the Bible says, and as long as I do what the Bible says, I'm good. Then there's the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and the Nicolaitans taught this doctrine, that you don't have to change anything about yourself if you have faith in Jesus. It was a refusal to repent. Oh, it's okay. It's okay for you to live that lifestyle. It's okay for you to do those things. It's okay for you to continue living in this sin. As long as you have faith in Jesus, it's okay. And listen, can we just just get real? Let's exhale a little bit. Maybe I'm the only one feeling tense. I don't know. Let's just talk about this for a second. There is room at the foot of the cross for everyone. For everyone. For everyone. Every single one of us is broken. It doesn't matter what your attraction is. Guess what? We are all broken sexually. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life where you might can compare yourself to someone else and say, well, at least I'm not like that. No, you are broken. We are all sinful people, and there is room at the cross for all of us to come to Jesus. But we need to know, church, we need to know that God loves us, yes, and He calls us, yes, and He wants to know us and be in relationship with us, yes. But the first thing that Jesus said when he began his ministry was repent. Hey, stop living that way. Stop living the way of the world. Stop living in your sin and follow me. I am the way to life. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you're hungry, come to me. Repent. Leave those things because they're destroying you and I have a better way of life for you. So we have two extremes here happening at this church in Pergamum. These two teachings that are starting to creep in, hyper-truth and then hyper-grace. One of them says, you know what? I believe in Jesus. That's why I follow these rules. And the other one says, you know what? I believe in Jesus. That's why I don't need rules. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. He came and said, yes, I do love you. Yes, I, I, do, I do want you. I want you to come just how you are. I want you to come to me in your mess and in your sin I want you to leave your sin and follow me. Does that make sense? So the the message to the church in Pergamum is reject false teaching. Is this okay? Everybody okay with this? League City and Friendswood? I know these can be be heavy subjects, all right? Let's go on to the fourth church we see in Revelation chapter 2. It's a church in the city of Thyatira. And at the beginning of the letter to this church in Thyatira, Jesus recognizes their works. He even says, I've seen your good works, your works of love and service and faith and patience, but something is happening in this church in Thyatira. And after studying it, it it, it seems that there was a spiritual leader, a spiritual leader that was either in the church, so in the authority of the local church there, had influence in the church, or it was just a spiritual leader that was in the city 
that became very popular and began to have influence into the people of the church. And Jesus says in Revelation 2.20, Nevertheless, yeah, you have your good works of love and service and all that, but nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, which is another callback to an Old Testament person, Queen Jezebel, who was known to have brought pagan worship into Israel. So she said, okay, we're going to keep worshiping the God of Israel, but also we're going to worship all these other gods. And Jesus says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Now, scholars who have studied this said there was an actual woman in the city, either in the church or in the community, that was a spiritual leader and a prophetess. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. This woman in Thyatira, she's influencing the church in the way, listen to me now, influencing the church in the way where they are accepting worldly and pagan practices and just putting it on top of their Christian faith. And if you study the culture there for pagan worship, they would go into these temples and they would have these festivals and feasts for pagan gods that would quickly devolve into sexual immorality. They would have food sacrificed to other gods, idols, that they were honoring these other gods. And this influence here that this woman is having to the church in Thyatira is that, hey, it's okay, you can worship Jesus and these other gods. So the church, some of the Christians there started saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be part of my Christian community. I'm going to do the things that my Christian community asks me to do. I'm going to go to service. I'm going to pray. But also I'm going to do the things the culture wants me to do too. I'm going to be involved with what the church is doing, but I'm also going to be involved with what the culture is doing. And the culture says these things are okay, even though that pastor at my church keeps talking about these things and how we shouldn't go to the temple and how we shouldn't be involved in these, these festivals and these feasts, but this other person comes and says, no, it's okay. You can have both. The message to the church in Thyatira is to remove impurity. You've been handed a faith, a pure faith. You've been, you've been called to follow Jesus and to represent him in the world, and that means you're separate. You're holy and separate for him, for his work, and you can no longer look like the culture around you. You can no longer do the things that the culture around you does. So remove impurity. The fifth church that we come to is a church in the city called Sardis. Revelation chapter 3 verses 2 and 3 says this, Wake up! Wake up, church in Sardis! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, This is Jesus speaking. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You won't be ready. When I show up, you won't even recognize me, and you won't be ready. At this church, at this church in Sardis, there is an absence of the Lord's work being done. Saying, hey, wake up, you're not doing my work. There is an absence of life within the church. Basically, this church became spiritually dead. They fell asleep. They're not prepared for the coming of the Lord, and the message to this church is renew your purpose. Then we come to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus doesn't have any rebuke for this church, only encouragement. 
This church in the city of Philadelphia, if you study this geographically, it was positioned to spread the gospel throughout Asia and beyond. I mean, it was located in a place where it was connected to many other cities, and and this church had influence that could reach all of Asia and beyond into the rest of the world. And this city was also full of paganism and emperor worship, but this church in Philadelphia had remained strong. And Jesus said in Revelation 3 and 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I believe this speaks to the potential this church has, the influence they could have across Asia. I've placed you an open door before you that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. They're facing persecution. The government's out to get them. Fellow citizens who are worshiping the empire or emperor and worshiping, worshiping pagan gods are out to get them. He says, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Under immense pressure, they kept the word and the message to the church in Philadelphia has continued to revere the word of God. Then we come to the church in Laodicea. Laodicea is an extremely wealthy city. There's tons of industry in this city. It's economically diverse. I even, during my studies, uh, came across a story that there was a a natural catastrophe that happened in this city in Laodicea. I think it was an earthquake that really destroyed a lot of the area and infrastructure. And the, the city was so wealthy, they didn't have to accept help from anything on the outside. They didn't need money from other cities. They didn't need people to come in and help them rebuild. They were so self-sufficient that then when part of their city was destroyed by an earthquake, they were able to rebuild everything and continue going. They're content as a result. The church in Laodicea, it's just like the culture has seeped in where they're just comfortable. They're content and apathetic due to their wealth. And Jesus tells them in Revelation 3, 15 through 17, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You you think you have something because you have worldly wealth and you have comforts and amenities and you're living a, a, a comfortable lifestyle. You don't realize your need for me. You you have forgotten how much you need me. When Jesus tells them you're neither hot nor cold, you know what he's telling them? You're good for nothing. Cold water has a purpose. You know, when you're really thirsty in the middle of the night and you wake up and you go to your refrigerator and you get a nice drink of cool, cold water, doesn't that feel so good? It refreshes you. It has a purpose. Hot water has a purpose. It can sanitize things and, and, you know, sitting in a hot tub is very relaxing and therapeutic. There's purpose that is served by cold and hot, but Jesus said, you're good for nothing. You're prideful and complacent. You, you, You have forgotten your need for me and you're not doing anything that's useful for me. So Jesus said, repent of lukewarmness. All of those letters we just went through, those were real letters to real churches with real people with real problems. So what is it that you and I today can learn from these letters? How can the church be ready for the last days? Life Church, how can we be ready for the last days. Friendswood, League City, everybody joining online as part of this church family, what can you and I do to be ready for the last days? The first thing is this. Have passion for Christ. 
to have passion for Christ, to repent of our lukewarmness, to to renew our purpose, to, to return to our first love. Those were the things that Jesus was speaking to those churches in Asia. And we should examine ourselves. Have we lost our first love? Are you showing up here because it's more about the social activity or it's because you want to look the part? Or are you gathering because you love Jesus? You want to worship Jesus. You want to encounter his presence, his spirit. You want to do his work in the world. Life Church, we've got to have a passion for Christ. In the last days, he's looking for churches that will do his work in the world. Because we could look around and we could see people that we think are crazy and lost and hopeless and wicked and evil. And Jesus is wanting us to see people that are lost and need him. We could become very comfortable and just having good church. We could become more obsessed with our programs and we could become more obsessed with the the quality of our services. And Jesus says, ah, you're good for nothing. I wish you were either hot or cold. I wish, you were, I wish you were doing something that was useful for my kingdom. That comes by having a passion for Christ. It doesn't come because you know the Bible better than anybody. It doesn't come because you live a more righteous lifestyle than anybody else. It happens when you have a passion for Jesus, our King, who died for us. I don't know about you, but Jesus saved me from a pretty rough, wicked, hopeless situation. He reached in and he didn't have any prejudice. He didn't didn't look at my faults and my failures. He looked at me as his child and said, I'm going to save you and redeem you. I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done in my life, the transformation that he's brought. I don't serve him out of fear or obligation or because that's just what my family does. I serve him because I love you. I love Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. The reason I get up here and speak to you is because I love Jesus. Have a passion for Christ. You want to be ready for the last days, church? Have a passion for Christ. Don't be obsessed about the future. Don't be obsessed and worried about what's going on in the world. Don't be obsessed about this coming election. You hear me, church? Don't worry about the condition of of the American political system. Do you have a passion for Christ? Good, because there's work for you to do. It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter what's happening in these different wars. There's work for us to do. And if we have a passion for Christ, that's how we can be ready. The second is this, reject corrupt religion. A lot of what Jesus was saying to these churches in Asia had to do with what they were being taught and how they were living as a result of the teaching, how they were living. So we have to reject corrupt religion. What does that look like today for you and I? There's a lot of spirituality, new age spirituality that's being spread in the culture. And just like that church that was being influenced to say, yeah, you can serve Jesus and you can continue, you know, coming to the temple with us. What does that look like for us today? It's like, yeah, you can, you can be a Christian and a Buddhist. I step on somebody's toes. Yeah, you can, you can be a Christian and you can continue, you know, using these crystals to ward off evil, evil spirits and lighting your incense and, and you can start incorporating these other practices from ancient philosophies and other religions. You know, you don't have to do everything the Bible says if, it, if it's, maybe you feel like that part's outdated, you know, like, okay, I don't, I don't really like what it has to say about sex right here, so I'm going to put that to the side, but I'm going to incorporate this part 
this other practice. No, reject corrupt religion. There is a true faith that you and I have been handed down. A true faith, a Christian faith, where Jesus is Lord and he has a way for us to live and it cannot be corrupted by outside influences. We're not gonna be hyper-truth. We're not gonna be dogmatic and tell you, oh, you don't measure up, you don't do this, you don't do that. And we're not gonna be hyper-grace. Just keep living how you're living as long as you have a relationship with Jesus, that's all that matters. No, he calls us to repent. Reject corrupt religion that is coming from the world. The universalism, the many ways to salvation, well, we all worship the same God anyway. Reject it. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Why does the Bible so often, and we just read several times where it did, why does the Bible so often say that, well, they led my people to eating food sacrificed to idols and to sexual immorality? That's always linked to the pagan worship that was happening in those cultures. It's culture. Okay, anytime you see that in scripture, well, it has led my people to eating food, sacrificed to idols, and to sexual immorality. That's what was happening in the culture around them. For you and I today, the culture is not sacrificing food to idols of pagan gods and eating it at festivals. And, and there's no centers. Well, I won't, the next part is true. There are gatherings where there's lots of sexual immorality. But for you and I, what that, what that means is we cannot let culture influence our faith. We cannot look at culture and say, well, culture says this is okay. So yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but it's okay for me to dabble in this. Does that make sense to everybody? Reject corrupt religion. And the last is this, how can we be ready? Remain faithful. Remain faithful. Like I said, we live in a postmodern, post-Christian world. More and more, there's going to be criticism against the church. More and more, there's going to be criticism against those of us who believe in the Bible and believe in Jesus and those of us who don't acquiesce to the culture. All right? Because we can look around right now, even within some denominations and other churches, we can look at the churches that are accepting the ways of the world and churches that are having their, their celebrations that mirror what's happening in the world, and churches where the priests and the pastors are affirming people the way the world is affirming people. And there's a temptation. Well, yeah, I, I want to be a Christian, but I also want to be liked by the world. I want to be a Christian. I don't want to be criticized. So if I can keep my faith, but also do all of these things that culture says is okay, maybe I'll be accepted. Remain faithful to the end. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer, Jesus said. Even to the point of death, remain faithful. Will you stand with me, please? I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward. I think there are preachers in every generation that have stood up and said, church, it's going to happen in our generation. Church, Jesus is going to come back in our generation. And obviously a lot of them have been wrong the sentiment is not wrong the sentiment of that statement of church be ready church we've got to be ready life church we've got to be ready so I'm not going to stand up here and say hey it's going to happen in our generation Jesus is going to come back before I pass away or before you pass away I don't know 
no man knows the day or the hour. But what I do know is that my King and my Lord and my Savior told me to be vigilant and be prepared. And that there will be chaos in the world and war in the world and unrest. But don't be unsettled by it because I have work for you to do. So I'm going to have a passion for Christ. I'm going to reject corrupt religion. I'm I'm not going to let the culture influence my faith. I'm going to remain faithful. And as we close today, the band is going to, every location, the band's ready to lead and worship one more time. All the prayer teams at every location are ready. I I would just encourage you, let's, let's spend some time reflecting. Maybe as I read through these letters to the church, there's something that spoke to you about what's going on in your personal life. Maybe there's something you started realizing, well, you know what? I have been trying to live in both worlds. You know what? I have been trying to live just accepting the grace of God and, and, you know, kept having my fun. And Maybe there's something as we were going through this message today that you were like, okay, Holy Spirit, I I feel that conviction. I I can feel that. And it's not meant to be shameful or, or condemning. It's not meant to scare you. This is Jesus telling us, I want you to be ready because I'm going to come back suddenly. So I want you to take this opportunity, church, every one of us, to repent. And that's not just for new people, okay? That's not just for for people who are new to the faith to repent. All of us, we, we need to repent. How have I been living? Have I been living so full of fear about the future, Lord, that I've lost sight of what you want me to do right now? Have I been living with so much uh, anxiety about when the rapture is going to take place that I haven't looked at what your word tells me to do in the last days? Have I been living with unforgiveness? Have I been living with anger? Have I made politics more important than you? Have I been holding on to things that I know don't honor you? Have I developed habits that I know don't honor you? Am Am I having thoughts that I know don't honor you? Let's repent today. You can be baptized today. At every location, you can be baptized. Maybe today's that day where you say, you know what? There are things I want to leave behind. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be part of his church. I want to be part of his church that's doing his work in the last days. I don't want to live fearfully. And I don't want to live the ways of the world. I want to join the church. You can be baptized today. I'm going to pray for you, but then I encourage you. Come to the prayer team at every location. Partner with them in prayer. If you have sickness in your body, brokenness in your family, something going on in your mind, you're waging war in your mind, let us lay hands on you and pray for you. Repent today. Be baptized today. Be encouraged today, church. Come on, let's be encouraged today. Can we just acknowledge that in the end, we know who wins? And the call is for us to be on his side. In the end, we know who wins, and the call is, come join me. Come be part of what I'm doing. What's the alternative? To be lost in the world full of chaos and anxiety. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you so much for Life Church. Thank you for these people. I thank you for your word, your promises, your goodness, your mercy. goodness and mercy. Lord, even as you were speaking to these churches who had some serious issues, you told them repent. That means you were giving them a chance. You weren't quick to deal out judgment or punishment. You're saying, come on. You're doing these things that I don't want you to do, but just come on. You can follow me. 
You're so patient with us. You're so kind and loving. We thank you, Lord. You're also righteous. You're also holy. You're in control. You hold all power. Every anxiety that we have today, we surrender it to you. Every anxiety that we have about our families, about our personal life, about our finances, about the state of the world, we hand you those anxieties and say, we know you are in control. We know you're in control. And while it looks like the world's falling apart, we have faith in you and we want to be part of what you're doing in the world. I pray for every person that walked in this place who's carrying some baggage, who's carrying some pain, who's carrying church hurt, who right now is going through divorce, who right now is battling addiction, who right now is at their lowest point, feeling like they've hit rock bottom, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would in this moment fill them, flood them, surround them, and instead of fear, anxiety, and shame, that they would feel peace and love and joy and hope that can only come from you, Lord. I pray all of us would realize, every single one of us would realize that the answer to all of our problems is you. And that when we lay down our lives, when we lay down our own preferences, our own desires, and our own shame, when we lay those things down and come to you, you can turn us all around. You can redeem us, you can restore us, and you can lead us to the best life we could ever live, a life of purpose and fulfillment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.